I'm Alexander Price, and you're listening to Machine Elf Radio. This week's episode concludes my most recent conversation with Greg Shaw and Isabel about Plato's Timaeus. And this was definitely my uh, favorite part of our of this most recent conversation, where we talk about what it would look like if your inner world came into harmony with the uh, the outer world and the outer cosmos in the way Plato proposes or describes in the Timaeus. And then uh, Isabel also shared with us a brief description of a wonderful Latin American poet named Sor Juana and a poem she wrote uh, called uh, The First Dream. And both Greg and I were were really excited to hear about that, and we'll probably uh, follow up and, and maybe talk about it the next time or in the future at some point. But uh, I, Isabel and I also definitely have uh, plans if anyone is following along and, and hoping to you know continue listening to this conversation as it moves forward. Um, in this episode, Greg uh, recommends a book called Chorology. It's spelled C-H-O-R-O-L-O-G-Y, uh, and it's by an author named John Salis. S-A-L-L-I-S, and we're going to be, uh, Isabel and I have plans to read that, and also Greg's article, which is titled The Cora of the Timaeus and Iamblichian Theurgy. So if anybody wants to read along, you're welcome to uh, to um, to read ahead with us, as Isabel and I try and jump into those two sources of this article and this book, and uh, and invite Greg back to, to have a conversation with us in the near future about the Quora, you know, continuing that conversation. And you can find Greg's paper on his academia.edu profile, stonehill.academia.edu slash Gregory Shaw, S-H-A-W. So, so can I ask you what, um, like if I was someone who was interested in saying like I I want to approach the Timaeus as like a guide to you know my own spiritual development, what am I supposed to do with uh, with this? Huh? What is its relevance to to my life? How would you go at that, Isabel? Mm-hmm. Well, that's difficult to answer, but I think for me it has definitely turned into a sort of intellectual quest. Yeah. That, because it just presented a. a feel a puzzle that I had been trying to phrase from maybe my first year of college when I first went into a literature class. And I think, for example, I was reading The Lace of Marie de France and the, the sort of Pythagorean spheres came up. Uh-huh. And from there I read The Dream of Scipio. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and then that sort of started this whole... I would call it sort of an intellectual quest to me trying to figure out exactly how it was that all of these philosophers or all of these authors were trying to basically phrase what it means to be in the world and inherit this tradition. And okay, I have a question for you, Isabel, because it's a question mm-hmm. I ask myself, and I don't know if Alex asks it, but one thing that you've got going that you've already explained, or at least you've made me feel it, is that there's something inside you I admit you can call it your daimon, you can call it your, your, you know, where your eros is heading, but there's a puzzle that sort of captivated you, and you keep mm-hmm. finding clues 
uh, and other pieces and you're starting to put this mosaic together and you kind of get moments where you think, oh, it's starting to come together, but then, mm-hmm. you, come back, you know, okay. So let's say that you get really more and more involved in it and see it. And I do think that Timaeus and all of these Pythagorean theories and so on worked for these people as a kind of sort of imagined mandala in which they could um, exist and, and find their fullness. But for them, that was also consistent with the way they saw the universe around us, you know, the mm-hmm. stars and the sun, the moon, the planets. And so there was no sort of like mm, disconnect between what they actually saw physically in their physical universe and what they imagined theoretically. Whereas uh-huh. for us, we can, we can go into their mandala and appreciate it as a mandala and in an aesthetic sort of form and we can get enriched by it. But we don't live in that, we don't live in the same physical universe in that uh-huh. sense. And sometimes I struggle with that and I wonder how can we translate the richness that they, that they experienced with that into the world that we're living in and make it in some way, translate it in some way that works for us. Uh, and that's what I think about sometimes. How can we translate it? It's a lot just to kind of get what they were after, but then to sort of find a way to translate what they were doing into our world, that seems to me to be a real challenge. What, but, uh, what I kind of pulled out... Does that make out, sense but, to you, mm-hmm. Isabel? Having, you know? Yeah, it makes sense to me, and I, I don't think I have an answer yet. But I think that the, the same sort of idea and the same so, sort of bewilderment has appeared throughout literature and throughout sort of... Maybe it's not exactly like the core or the same as the Pythagorean spheres, but right. that same sense of there is something there that we don't quite understand and that we will never really understand that it sort of seeps into our reality and then trying to grasp what that is, I think has a, been translated in some shape or other, maybe not directly from the Greeks or the medieval period, but something like that mm. I think has been translated. I don't know. Cool. Yeah. I'm sorry. Alex, you were going to say something too. I was going to say that what I um, was pulling out of it from this last reading that I did to to prepare for tonight was um, this idea of uh, every human soul being uh, associated with a star and that if you live a uh, just righteous life in in this world at the end of it you return or you travel to that star and you live there and uh you have your own kind of personal happy place you know <laughs> uh, and and like okay, right. th- that's really uh it's it's such a wonderful and rich idea and then it also gets kind of challenging where Immediately, as soon as he puts this idea on the table, he starts introducing like this idea of reincarnation, where like if a man uh, isn't sufficiently in control of himself, then you know, sadly, he becomes reincarnated as a woman. And if even that, if even that doesn't work, then he gets reincarnated as an animal, and he slowly has to struggle his way back up. uh, uh, You know into it's it it really seems like only men have the potential to uh to become i don't know is is that idea like if you travel if you're traveling to your star is that idea that you become a god and that that's something that's only available to men well 
that's not how I read Plato. Yeah. But I know that's what he said literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's it, 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 if one takes that literally, it's um, I, I just I just don't because I think that that's um, um, a misfortunate um, you know, spin on things. Um, but you know, it's possible that Plato, writing at the time he wrote, you know, was reflecting some of the social structures of his time in oh, which yeah. men were higher than women and and so it was just the way the metaphor rolled out but um it's metaphorical at most anyway and i think he's basically talking about i do think he well i don't know i have my thoughts but isabel since you're a woman too and you've read that you've been in the involved in the two as you probably definitely wondered how to wrestle with that passage right um maybe not i mean i think partly just um, because by the time I was reading the Timaeus, I had already been in classics for a little while. You sort of get inured. <laughs> I would say to, right. To, I get it. I get it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's not I mean, that like surprising. You, yeah, you read it and maybe, I mean, laugh with your advisor and then <laughs> move on. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I think that that's yeah, that's probably the best thing to do with it. And there's still a lot to mm-hmm. a lot a lot of value there in the the idea of like uh, um, I don't know uh, achieving some kind of equilibrium internally with your emotions and desires and 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 all of that uh, without necessarily having to make it misogynistic. Oh, I, without without a doubt, yeah, I agree. Um, I also think that um, I would like to to believe that the the Platonists thought that that experience of uniting with your star did not require that you physically died hmm. that that the whole idea was that you could coordinate your the the circles of your soul um, with the circles of the heavens while you're alive and if you do that then you become aligned with the world soul in which case um, you're at a different sort of level of reality it's you're still a human being, but but you have something more that you're also resonant with. At least mm-hmm. that's the way I would imagine it. Um, how that manifested, I'm not sure, except that they did have stories about people like Pythagoras and, and some of these others that, that seem to be uh, remarkably um, empowered human beings. Um, Sometimes it manifested that they would do things that could, could recollect things that people couldn't remember, or, or there's stories about um, that they had, uh, you could say, supernatural powers. Even, yeah. I know that sounds a little uh, woo-woo. Oh, for not us. to me, not to me. <laughs> well, okay, uh, I don't know, but uh, I'd I'd like to think that we don't need to die in order to experience that um and in fact i've never really liked that idea um Mm. uh that if if there's some kind of reality to be accessed you got to do it while you're alive Mm -hmm. but that's been my bias and um and i think that they were after that that's why they had the school that's why they had the whole idea of going through a catharsis and then and then um awakening Uh to to your connection with these um bringing your your circles in, in, in alignment with the circles of the world soul. In fact, somewhere, I think it's Timaeus 97 or something, doesn't, um, Isabel can help us on this, he says that um, if you can bring your 
your soul into alignment with the heavens, that is the most divine a human being can ever mm-hmm. be. And um, something must have been going on there. Mm-hmm. And I would, I, I would want to just add one thing: is that I think that the, the later Platonists like, that I've written about definitely bought that. Mm-hmm. And then people like Marsilio Ficino in the Renaissance mm-hmm. believed that, mm-hmm. and he thought that if he could play certain musical mm-hmm. um, compositions to the people in his school who were out of alignment with their planets, that he could bring them back into alignment by intuning them. Mm-hmm. And this is where all those, you know, the Pythagorean stuff comes in. But they, whether it was crazy and whether they were just all part of this sort of hallucination about tuning themselves in, they bought into it and somehow they felt like it worked. Mm-hmm. You've probably read about that, right, Isabel? I have read a little bit about that more in... Um, there's this poet from um, what was then New Spain, mm-hmm. um, Sor Juana. Don't know she it, was, yeah. She was, a, yeah, she was a nun um, who was extremely intelligent, and she came from a... Um, her mother was indigenous and her father was uh, a Spanish general. So she was sort of of low birth. Mm-hmm. But because she was so smart, she was asked to join um, the court of the viceroy. And this and, was in present-day Mexico? On uh, the colonial period. Right. In Mexico. Right. Well, so, the area that's now Mexico. Right. Okay. Yeah, the area that's now Mexico. And she wrote this poem that is basically it's called The First dream and it's about her basically taking all of these neoplatonist platonist ideas and um going into sort of a dream state and then traveling and her soul is trying to reach um her star basically okay i think this is why i wanted to talk to you guys this this is the most interesting thing i've heard in a long time what's her name uh Sor Juana, so S-O-R, and that's just um, basically yeah. in Spanish, it's like saying mother. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and then Juana, uh, J-U-A-N-A. Sor Juana. Mm-hmm. The first dream. I have never heard of that, but it sounds fantastic. It's an amazing poem. And um, so it's sort of this, it's her soul traveling and it's trying to basically reach the light which represents truth in a way and uh, she has all these obstacles that she's trying to overcome and then the end she wakes up and she realizes that she wasn't able to find it but she touches on all of these ideas and it's interesting because she she is basically trying to have like her own dream of Scipio but she has no guide um, well, okay Okay, but it's a fantastic idea. I mean, mm-hmm. my, my sense is, do, is it your sense that, that she really had this experience and that she tried to capture it in what she wrote? I think so. Um, she has. Uh, she wrote mainly, most of her other poetry seems to have been um, sort of requests from people in the court. So it's a lot of love poetry and things like that. Um, and she says in one of her letters that that poem is the only poem that she actually meant to write in her life. <laughs> this and, is beautiful. What um, a cool, what a cool topic. Has it been translated into English? Yes, definitely. It's a very 
she's sort of um she has become sort of the symbol in in Latin America especially of um sort of um feminism and sort of woman intellectuals and yeah yeah she um especially because after she wrote that poem um she wrote this other letter to um this sort of um priest that said that it was it should be illegal for her to be studying so much basically those fucking priests sorry yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah basically so she yeah. wrote a response in which she basically um accumulates all of the she sort of writes a chronology of all the big discoveries that women have made uh -huh. so she lists hypatia um yes. um i don't remember who else but it's a pretty long list of female intellectuals in the ages and she says and i am amongst them and you have no right to silence me but because God, she wrote she that response fantastic. yeah no she's a, and she died very young and soon after that um if but i were you I, I wouldn't be able to to get my my mind off her i'd, I'd want to like sort of like you know, make more people be aware of her and what she represents, you know? Oh, yeah. And that's um, partly my proposal for my PhD was talking about reception of classics through her. All right. That sounds great. <laughs> um, that's, the coolest, that's the coolest thing I've heard in a while. I've never heard of Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz, huh? Yep, exactly. Cool. <coughs> So, um, so what do you think, um, Alex, about, you know, the, the accessing one's star? Um, maybe even, well, see, uh, this is my theory, is that the way we access our star and the way that we realign our circles with the circles of the world soul is that we have to find in ourselves the place that, that is like the Korah so that we can get quiet enough and receptive enough so that we can keep quit imposing our wrong expression of these circles into the world and then and then receive the balanced expression of those circles and then give expression mm. to them in our lives that's that's where we're really creative that's when we're our creativity is in sync with the creation of the world that's always going on at least in the platonic idea so that's when I think that that's when we participate in our star self, mm. when we are able to do that. And I think that connects to the whole thing of the Kora, too. Um, mm -hmm. And the Buddhists would say, you know, you have to get into shunyata or that emptiness before the Buddha mind can then come into existence. They have a different metaphor for it, but I mean, I think it's similar. Yeah, well, and also in uh, Sanskrit, the word uh, buddhi means intellect. So there's clearly a uh, um, connection between being a Buddha and some sort of transformation of the the, the intellect. Um, oh yeah, yeah. But sure. my my uh, inclination to to answer your question, like as a, a former dancer, you know, is uh, that oh, uh, yeah, yeah. When I uh, 
I, before Isabel had told us about, you know, this, this, uh, this poem about the journey that, you know, the spiritual journey to the star, uh, I would, I, I would have only thought of it as something that happens after death also, but like hearing you talk about it in that way, like now I, uh, think about uh some experiences that i had when i was younger and dancing and maybe maybe just a, a few times it happened but uh uh getting into uh a place where um i don't know you feel touched by a sort of grace and there is a kind of alignment that happens like while you're uh uh dancing that um like it it just makes me feel like when you get to that moment where everything clicks into place you know it like nobody has to tell you that yes you 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 mm-hmm. you're in alignment now or you've found it that like you know you just know uh and it's maybe but but then if i'm putting it in those terms like i would say it's not a way that you can live every second of every day you know it is a, a an exp- it would be more of an experience that comes and goes and uh um at least in this life, you know, it's not something that, that can be like, uh, uh, like you achieve it once and then it's yours for the rest of your life. And you, you know, that's just, everything's great. Uh, no, that I like the way you described it. Um, uh, huh. You know, I, I also, um, tend to agree with the way you characterized how we access it, not like buying something and, and then owning it, or having it permanent, but rather putting yourself into the right frame of mind and energy so that it, you invite it to come in. It comes in within that, that that context, and then you move out of that context, and it's no longer there. But it's possible that we might be able to, oh, I guess, nurture those moments in our lives by, by certain kinds of rituals or behaviors or practices. Um, I even think that yeah, studying can can do that. Like, you sit down, you go back and look at the text. You're you're kind of pulled by something. You're drawn to it, and um, sometimes even being immersed in 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 the act of studying, you, you feel like you're pulled into something bigger than yourself occasionally. And I think that's kind of cool too. If I'm not mistaken, near the end of the Timaeus, they talk a lot about understanding, and how. It's uh, something that's unique to humans, I believe. Um, but 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 that seems to me to have you know to be part of of like my intuitive understanding of 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 this this idea of that 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 the connection is is you know what I might have experienced in those moments as a dancer, and what you also could experience uh, intellectually is a moment of understanding, which can just occur on different levels of your being. Like it doesn't necessarily have uh-huh. to be an intellectual kind of understanding, but it can be. But that's really like that is, I think, a really great way of characterizing it of, of just like, yeah, I get it. You know, like I understand. Uh, uh. And 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 I was also thinking about how important the role of music is in that experience for dancers too. You know. Mm, mm, mm. I think that one of the things I think about thinking is that <coughs> to the degree that thinking can be more like what you described as dance in, in response to the mm. music or as an expression of the music, I think that's the kind of thinking that that's amenable to uh, or resonant with this kind of um, Pythagorean, Neoplatonic kind of, of 
thinking that they were engaged in. And it's very different from the kind of thinking that a lot of us uh, are accustomed to, which is sort of a grasping, you know, I understand this, this is a piece of information, this is what the information means, and, yeah. and sort of like piling it up like boxes. Whereas this other kind of thinking is you're not you're not grabbing things like boxes of information, but you are you're moving with it. And yeah. um, I, I like your dance metaphor. Well, yeah, and I also think about like m- metaphors of conquering or, or like consumption, where uh, like you understand something, meaning like you've conquered something or you've uh, incorporated it into yourself, and and. Uh, um, and I, and I think that I, I wouldn't characterize it that way. Like what I've been trying to express at all is is more of like uh, a conversation or uh, it has more of like an element of mutuality or, uh, um, yeah. I don't know, connection. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, so when do you find out, Isabel, about your acceptance into these different um, programs? Um. In the spring? So, yeah, in the spring. I think around... Mm-hmm. I really hope you get in. I think it would be great if somebody um, uh, did some work on this fascinating person who I think really... Plus, what a, cap- a captivating title for her um, work. The first the first dream I had, but it's the primary vision, so to speak. Is that the mm-hmm. sense of it? That's how I understood it. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is the the first dream of the human soul, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Okay, beautiful. Wow, that's so creative. I would really love to read it to you. It's wow. a, it's a it's a combination of all these sort of different ideas that I think we've been talking about. Because in some ways, I think for her, at least the way I interpret that poem is that for her, that alignment is sort of through intellect. Right, and, um, yeah. and through the act of just knowing so much and being able to, because it's sort of a a journey through everything she knows. At some point, it almost becomes a list of um, like mythology, uh, yeah, mythological characters and uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, references to places like Alexandria. Her soul travels to Alexandria. And, oh wow. Um. It gives me and a lot. Also to... combined, huh? I was just thinking it's going to give me a lot to think about the night journey of Muhammad, also about his soul traveling to Jerusalem and what, like what. I, I've always taken it very literally, <laughs> and now now <laughs> now I'm going to be able to think about it in a more subtle way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be easier to take it non-literally, Alex, just okay. between you and me. <laughs> I mean, unless although I, I love the idea of flying on that burak that. Pegasus all wow, the way yeah. over to Jerusalem. That's so cool. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't um, get me started on the Barak is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, in Kimberly Patton's class, I, I uh, made a big deal recently about how uh, shamans also very commonly uh, travel on horses in the spirit world um, and how cool mm-hmm. it is that, they're, that, that, that Islam shares that in common with uh, uh, like indigenous religion you wouldn't think that they would have a lot in common. Oh, that's interesting. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Um, are you familiar with um, either one of you with, with the work of Peter Kingsley? Oh, yeah. I'm oh, not. you are. 
Okay. I'm a he's, huge, um, yeah, go ahead. he's sort of a shamanic figure mm-hmm. uh, in, in the contemporary world who is trying to kind of bring back the vitality of the shamanic tradition uh, from the pre-Socratic time uh, into the contemporary experience through himself, largely. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and he's 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 a riveting kind of writer and speaker, um, and he's very interesting and he's and he's got a lot of insight. A lot of people don't like him. Um, I happen to like him. So, I am a big fan of uh, his first big book. What was this one called uh, about magic? Magic mystery and yeah, yeah, right. Magic mystery and philosophy, something to that effect. And then he had oh, another ancient, book called Ancient Philosophy, Mystery, and Magic. Uh, Impedicles that was his first book. In the Pythagorean tradition. Really, it was a brilliant book. That one was really wonderful. It is brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And he told me that when he wrote the book, he had no idea from day to day what he was going to write, but that he would have a dream in the night and that would give him a sense of what book he should look at for the next day to get, to, to get the next insight. And so he's pretty much laid himself open to being guided entirely by, uh, you could call it dreams or daimons or whatever, spirit. and and that's how he that spirit that's how he operates, which is um, not the academic way, no. generally speaking. No. But he's also written a, a shorter book too, um, uh, the Dark Places of Wisdom. Uh, it's another book, which is about uh, Parmenides' journey into the underworld and the, the poem uh, of Parmenides. And, but it's all interpreted by Kingsley as a shamanic initiation. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of what Isabel was talking about with um, Thorfana's sort of ascent through these different spheres. It's kind of a mm-hmm. shamanic journey of a kind. Mm-hmm. Seems to me, at least it strikes me. Oh, Very yeah, intellectual. Definitely. Yeah. And... I mean, the way it starts out is with um, the sort of medieval idea that when you're sleeping, you produce some sort of gases mm-hmm. in your stomach to like, have something to do with the humors. I don't really understand that part that much. But I no, it's, yeah, I don't it's either. Some, but um, it worked for her, right? Yeah, it's something like if it's the right combination, then your soul can go on this journey. Mm-hmm. 